Would you now stand for the reading of God's Word? Our passage is Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven." And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. From the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and said, and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan, Satan. You are an offense to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with, to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world, yet he loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nicola. Great job. Hey, would you pray with me once more as we come to God's word together? Let's pray. Father, here we are before your word. Lord, we, we need to be ministered to by you. We need you to bring healing into our life. We need you to change us and to change our hearts. And yet you tell us it is by your word, by the power of your word. It is your instrument to change us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit to use your word to do just that this morning that you would open our ears and open our hearts and give us an expectation of you, that you really are present and you really are active in and through your word. So, Lord, speak to us. Speak into our hearts so that we see Jesus afresh, so that our affections are changed, so that then we are changed. So come and speak to us, your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, each week, if you're visiting with us, our sermon introduction is actually a question for the kids. And at our church here, we welcome kids to be a part of the service because we feel like they are a part of this. This is not just for adults. So we start off with that each week. So kids, I have a question for you. 
You ready to answer here? Who is the boss in your house? Who's in charge? Your dad, all right. What's that? Mom too, that's right. Yes, very good. Yes, that's right. Good job. H, dad, okay. Any others? Drew? Dad, dad all right. We've got a lot of votes for dad in here. I like it, I like it. Luke? Mom, all right. We know how it works in their house. That's right. Gray? Jesus? Hey, how about the pastor's kid, huh? How about that? Got that 20 for you later. Good job. Good work, son. Show how spiritual the pastor is. Not really. Don't, just don't come to my house and see something totally different. Gray loves to say, there's a question Gray loves to toss out to people. He loves to say, who's the boss of you? He'll say that all the time. He'll say that to us in the house or he'll say it to Ashley. Mommy, who's the boss of you? Or to me, Daddy, who's the boss of you? It's a really great question. Uh, kids at school, who's the boss of you at school? When? The principal, that's right, yes. And then even below the principal? Your mom, yes. They, <laughs> school is home for them, yes, that's right. She gets a double, double vote there. H, the teacher, that's right. As we begin to think about it, there's so many realms of life in which we are under authority. There's also realms of life in which we are the authority. We hold an authority. We've been entrusted with an authority. But sometimes, kids, sometimes do you not want anyone to be the boss of you? Do you ever want no one to, you want to be the boss yourself? I think so. Uh, I don't know if you remember this show. I think it's been off for a couple years. It was called Super Nanny. Did you ever watch Super Nanny? So it was this awesome show. It would, like, really draw you in. If you're a parent, I think you thought it was awesome. And uh, on this show, there was this lady named Super Nanny, okay? So she's, like, the ultimate in, like, discipline and structure and all this stuff. And she would go to people's homes. It's a reality show. And she would go to people's homes in which it was a complete disaster, in which, like, the, the kids were haywire, the, peop- the parents were at their wits' end, and uh, I think, sadly, the reason you like to watch this is because it makes you feel better about your own house if you're a parent. That's kind of the whole idea of, of uh, reality TV. I'd, I'd watch these people and be like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe how bad they are. It makes me feel better. But so you watch this show, and so Super Nanny would come in, and it would be a disaster, and she would begin by just watching. She'd watch the kids. Of course, they're filming it all, and the kids are, like, just running rampant. They're running the show. The parents are at their wits' end. The parents have just totally lost control. And essentially, every show was the same. And what she did was the same each week. The very first thing she had to do is she had to convince the parents that they had been given a trust, that they had been entrusted with authority, that that's just the way it is. I mean, Super Nanny wasn't a Christian. She wasn't basing this upon how God had made everything, but yet she's saying, listen, you've got to realize... You've been made to be the authority. And you've got to use that authority not for yourself, but for the good of your children. And then she would then begin to help the children understand that mom and dad were the authority and that they needed to submit and to live under that authority. God has created a certain kind of order 
to life. And as we begin to think about all kinds of different realms of life have this authority structure kind of reality, whether you're on a, on a sports team, um, as, as the players listen and follow, who's the boss on the sports team? What's well, the coach? As we think about the military, as we think about the workplace, as we begin to think about our lives, we begin to see that really this dynamic of authority and those under authority is in every realm of our life. But here's the thing. In our culture, authority is not a very popular concept. You're aware of this, right? I mean, we are Americans. We will submit to no authority, right? We are a democracy. We trash our leaders. They serve us. Um, have you ever seen the state of Virginia's flag? It's fascinating. You need to go out and see this. You know, Virginia was one of the very first states uh, of, the, of the Union and, and really represented the very heart of the spirit of what it means to be an American. And do you know what is on their flag? It is the picture of a woman, a Virginian, with her foot on the back of a king. She is standing on top of a king and his crown's laying over at the side. And under, underneath it is a Latin phrase that means, thus always to tyrants. The very heart of what it means to be an American is that we will be under no authority. Some of us, uh, 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 well, I know the Dubles here are really um, passionate about New Hampshire. Some of their family is from there. And they got the New Hampshire sticker out there. You'll look on their car. And what does it say? What is the motto of New Hampshire? Live free or die. Live free or die. See, what's in our bones is this sense of like, we are free and not under authority. Now, it's, it's important to, to point out the fact that the reason that democracy is so good, the reason that we have this spirit is because so often in the history of the world, authority has been abused. It's been used to oppress, even in our own culture. In the history of our own country, we have known the oppression of minorities, of women, of immigrants. So often in this life, authority is abused. It is used for the benefit of those in authority. But here's what's important for us to see. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. God has established this dynamic of authority and called us to submit to authority. In fact, as we submit to authority, we're submitting to Him. We're in a series where we're talking about membership. And essentially, membership is submitting to authority. It's submitting to the authority of the church. Now, I realize that I'm talking about today two of the most distasteful words in the American language. And yes, I meant to say American language. We don't like the words submission. Do you? Or even authority. But what we're going to see is that God calls us to this. I realize that we are walking right straight into, right against the grain of the culture this morning. And I realize that you might be a little upset with me and I might be on your toes a little bit, but you see, this, this is the way in which we become a countercultural kind of people because our culture is not one that submits to authority, but rather we as God's people are called to be a people that submit to the authorities that He brings into our life. And a part of that authority is the church. So let's see that. Where do we, where do we see this crazy notion 
of authority and submission to authority in the Scriptures. Well, we read Matthew 16. Look at that passage again. Now, this is one of those passages, a very important passage, where for the very first time in all the Gospels, the disciples profess, confess that Jesus is the Christ. The very first time it happens. In the book of Mark, the whole book pivots on that moment. The whole book shifts. It's kind of like the first part of the book is, is who is this? And then when he is named, everything changes. He begins to head straight for Jerusalem. So it's a very important passage, one that we're probably familiar with. But as we read this, because our eyes are not looking for this sense of authority, we tend to move right past this enormous authority that Jesus entrusts to the apostles. Look again here. So Jesus comes to the apostles, verse 13, and asks them, who do the people say that I am? And of course they respond, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. And then Jesus brings home this question, which is really the ultimate question for every single person. Okay, who do you say that I am? It's ultimately a question that each and every single person must answer for themselves. Who do you say he is? And Peter, kind of the spokesman for the twelve, he steps up and in a shining moment, of course the next moment's not quite as shining, but in a shining moment, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says to him, after he's made this confession, you blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. He changes his name. In this pivotal moment, the first person who has confessed him as the Christ, you are Peter. The word Peter is a Greek word that means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Upon you, and upon your confession, I will build my church. But it's not just for Peter alone. Peter is only the spokesman for the twelve. But rather, upon the apostles themselves, Jesus will build His church. And look at what He says next. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Wow. He says to Peter and to the twelve, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Do you feel the weight of that? Is that a little shocking to you? Jesus says to a group of human beings... I will make you the authority over my church. I will give you the keys. To have the keys means that you can open and shut the door. You can grant access or you can deny it. It's an enormous amount of authority that Jesus entrusts to the apostles. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. A sense of of an authority given to their judgments, to their leadership. Jesus entrusts to the apostles a unique kind of authority within the church. And we see throughout the scriptures that the apostles exercise that authority as they go about establishing the church. Literally, they are handling the keys of the kingdom. They are granting access. They are denying it. Now, it is not an authority that solely rests upon them, you see. It is an authority that belongs to Jesus alone. But get this. Jesus delegates that authority to the apostles. 
That is something that God does in all realms of life. God, of course, is the ultimate authority. God is the one who runs His life, who uh, provides everything that we need, who gives us our daily bread, all of these things. It's ultimately God. But God does not do it directly most of the time. The way that God governs His world, the way that He provides for us, the way that He protects us is through delegated authority. It's part of who He is. He could do it Himself very efficiently, very easily, but God is a God who delegates His authority and who works through human persons to bring about what we need in our life. We see this in the Scriptures in so many concepts, in so many ways. Uh, We see this essentially in the fifth commandment. You know the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. The sense of that is that, um, that God has established mom and dad to be his hands and feet of authority over the children. God has placed mom and dad over the children to be there, to raise them, to lead them, to be their authority. And as children learn to honor mom and dad, follow them, trust them, you are actually learning how to submit to God how to follow Him as authority. The home is where you learn the concept of authority. And if children never learn that concept, if they never learn the importance of submission, the importance and even the gift of authority in our life, we know that kids are going to go out and their life is going to be a mess. It'll be hard to hold a job, probably going to get in trouble with the law. All kinds of troubles come into our life if we don't know how to submit to authority. There's all kinds of other places where we see this dynamic at play. The Scriptures talk about uh, submitting in the marriage, for the wife to submit to the husband, uh, for uh, employees to submit to their employers. And in this amazing passage in Romans 13, I can't believe it's in here, the Apostle Paul actually calls us to submit to the governing authorities who are over us. And he says some amazing things about it. Now, you talk about un-American. Submit to the governing authorities in your life, for they are God's servant. It doesn't mean just just those who are Christians. It means that God sovereignly establishes government over us, that through that He would provide for us, He would protect us. And He calls us, as those under authority, to submit to that authority. And as we do so, we're submitting to God. Very foreign concept here. You see, God... God exercises authority by proxy. This word proxy means in your place. You know, to be a proxy means I'm your substitute. I stand in your place. I I, I take what you want to happen and I play it out here. That, I'm a proxy. And this is how God governs the world and leads our life. So the question then becomes, is this a dynamic that's at play in the church? Is this something that he does in the church? Because it's very common for us to think, especially whenever we come to our spiritual lives, that that what really matters is just me and Jesus. That we kind of that we have this direct relationship. It is me and Jesus, and, and he is the only authority in my life, and I don't need any other accountability in my life. I don't need people in my life. I don't need to belong. I don't need to uh, be a part of a church because I have the Holy Spirit. I don't need any of those things. Have you ever thought that or heard that? There's a, there can be a way of hyper-spiritualizing the spiritual life and saying, I don't need to belong, I don't need authority because God is my authority. 
But what we begin to see as we come to the Scriptures is that whenever we think only God is our authority, really the only authority that you have is you. And what the Scriptures call us to is to be accountable to one another, and it is through one another in the church that He brings His accountability into our life. So how do we see this playing out in the New Testament? Well, first and foremost, as you see the apostles going, like in the book of Acts, throughout the world, establishing the church, the very first thing they do in the churches is they appoint elders. They appoint leaders in every church, those who would be shepherds of the church, those who would uh, be the authorities over the church, those who would care for those in the church. Uh, Most of the letters in the New Testament, the epistles, are written to churches or to individual leaders over the churches, and they address how is the congregation to respond to the leaders that are over them, and how are the leaders to lead and to shepherd and to care for the body. And then there's this passage in Hebrews 13. Just hear this passage for a moment, which again I think is is shocking to our natural bent. Here's what he says. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. I was talking about in the church. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Right there. As he's speaking to the church, he says, Obey the leaders who are over you in the Lord. For God has called them to this position. He has called them uh, to be accountable for you. You see, authority is a gift from God in our life. We see here that, that, that we're called to submit to the leadership He brings into our life, but that they are entrusted with an incredible responsibility. Throughout Scripture, we see this, this sense of which those who are called to be leaders, those who are called to be teachers, are judged to a far higher standard. And so Scripture kind of says, hey, you don't want to be a teacher. You don't want to be a leader because your responsibility goes way up. Your responsibility to care for those who are under you goes way up. And of course, we know this as parents. You know this if you're an employer. Your responsibility is greater versus if you were just under authority. And so the message here to them is, hey, submit to those who are under you because, you know, you can make their life really miserable really easily. You can make it very hard for them, but if you submit to them, if you trust them, if you follow them, their work will be a joy, and that will be good for you. It'd be no, no advantage to you to make their life miserable. That's the logic there. I learned this very tangibly in my own life. Whenever uh, I graduated college, I was a new believer. I'd been uh, really involved with the campus ministry, mentioned some of that last week. Um, but I spent four years on staff with a campus ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ. In my first two years, I was at the University of Georgia, and I was under men who had mentored me and discipled me, and, and uh, wonderful men. And I, in my mind, these men, they were my heroes. The, the way that I learned to do ministry from them, that's how you do it. But then... I was moved, I was transferred to Ole Miss, to a different campus, and I was under different leadership. And almost immediately whenever I showed up, I was like, this guy, this leader here, he doesn't know what he's doing. This guy's an idiot. 
He's not doing it right. He's doing it all wrong. And so what did I do? I didn't submit. I began to buck against his leadership. In fact, the whole staff that was under him, all we would do is sit around and talk about all the wrong things that he was doing in ministry. And then, in God's grace, God struck me with this reality here. God had not called me to be the director of that ministry. It's not what he had called me to do. He had called me to be a part of that ministry and to be under his leadership. It struck me so clearly for the first time in my life. And so God brought me to a place of repentance, and I went and met with him. His name was Isaac. And I said, Isaac, I need to confess to you. I have resisted your leadership. I have not submitted to you, and I've led others to do the same. And from now on, you tell me to jump, I ask how high. I'm here to follow you and support you. And you should have seen, I mean, I, I, I was watching li- uh, years come into this man's life. To try to lead a staff that was bucking him at every turn was literally draining the life from him. And he said to me, you don't know what that means to me. And so the, the, the last year on staff with Crusade, I spent in submission to this man. And do you know what actually happened? I actually began to learn some things from him. We saw God move in our ministry. See, I'd never seen, I'd never thought about that concept. I thought the bottom line is, he's not doing it right, we need to do it right, and it's up to us to do it. What I didn't understand is that I wasn't called to do that. That wasn't my weight to bear. And you see, whenever we are resistant to authority, we begin to bear a weight we are not intended to bear. We are trying to take control of something that we have no control over. There is an enormous freedom in submission. There's an enormous freedom in saying, I'm not responsible for that, but you are, and so I'm going to trust you. See, submission is just like another word for trust. I'm going to trust that God is going to lead me through you. That's the concept of leadership. But really, if you boil it all down and you look all the way down to the heart, the heart issue here is control. The reason why submission is so very hard for us is because we want to be in control. What an enormous weight to being in control, to thinking that it's all up to me, but that is the very essence of sin. The very first sin was born out of, I don't want to stay in my place, rather I want to be in the place of God. I want to be boss of me. I want to be in charge. I don't want to live under your authority. And every sin that has ever followed that first one has had that at its root. We want control. But you see, submission is just releasing control. It's just yielding trust to someone that God has called to lead. Now, here's the reality with our control and our resistance to authority. There is no avoiding, ultimately, of authority. Did you catch that in what Jesus was saying in the passage? He says, he who would seek to save his life, will lose it. He who would seek to hold control of his life, who would seek to possess his life and make his own way, ultimately you will lose it. If you want to be the boss of you, if you want to be the authority of your life, ultimately you will lose it all. But if you lose your life, if you surrender it, if you submit it to Jesus, 
you actually find life. That is the very essence of following Jesus, of releasing and submitting, releasing control to Him. It is surrender. Sometimes as we think about Jesus, we just think about Jesus as Savior, like Jesus, meek and mild, you know, sweet little baby Jesus, as Ricky Bobby says. You know, meek and mild Jesus who came simply to pay for sin. We think of Him only as Savior. We, many people are confused in thinking that you can have Jesus as Savior and yet not Lord. But the reality is, is that He is both. You can't have half a Jesus. If you want salvation from Him, if you want life from Him, if you want forgiveness from Him, you've got to take the whole thing. And that means a releasing of your life. That means a submitting of your life to Him. That's what He says right there as He goes on. He who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. To deny yourself is only another way of putting submission. It is to give up your rights, to deny your preference and to yield it to Him. That's what submission is. And it's to take up your cross and follow Him, which is an odd thing to say, right? It's kind of like us saying, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to take up your electric chair and follow Him. You've got to take up your instrument of death and follow Him. You've got to take up your noose and follow Him. Why would He say something like that? Because submitting is dying. It's dying to yourself. It's releasing your way. It's releasing your control. And that is the very essence of coming to belong to Jesus. You see, He is not Savior only, but yet also Lord. That's what, Jesus, that's what Peter's confession means here. Whenever he says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. The word Christ is not his last name. It is a royal title. It means king. So in that moment, Peter is acknowledging the reality that you are the king. And here's the reality about kings, and we don't understand this because we're Americans. You don't vote for king. You submit to him. You bow before him. Jesus is king. And if you want Jesus, you ultimately must come to that place where you bow before him and release all control to him. It is surrender. But here's what makes that possible. Here's what begins to bring down our barriers to that thing. Here's what compels us to release surrender to Him. It's the gospel. It's only as we see this king spreading his arms on a cross for us that we are compelled to surrender our lives to Him. See, the most remarkable reality about the cross is that He is also the king. But yet the cross, to give His life, to lay down His life for us, was the very reason for which He came. He says that even in the passage. Peter completely doesn't know what he's just said. Right after Peter makes this confession, Jesus begins, in verse 21 it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must suffer. He must die. Do you get that word must? It is the only way. The only way for Him to rescue us is for Him to die in our place. Jesus is the King, but the only King that has ever lived that would die for His people. 
it, it, it totally changes leadership and authority. He is the suffering servant. As he says in, earlier in the book of Matthew, he said, even the Son of Man, even the King did not come to be served, and He is the only one who has ever deserved absolute service by us, absolute worship. But he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. It is only as you see His laying down His life for you, in spite of all that's true of you, as you see Him bearing shame and with joy in His heart, hanging upon that cross for you, that your grip begins to be loosened upon your life. It is only as we see Him dying to bring us to Himself that we can say, you can have my life. And as we see the power and the truth of the gospel, we can trust Him with our life. You can trust Him. Do you think He's going to lay down His life for you and now abandon you? As we see the gospel, we see the ultimate picture that you can be my authority. I will release my life to you. A couple weeks ago, we talked about a scene from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis does a tremendous job of really bringing together in Jesus both of these dual realities, both this, this tenderness and this gentleness, but yet at the same time, a power and a fierceness and, and an authority of a king. And, and that, that comes together in the person of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. And in one of the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the books, is called The Silver Chair. And now there's a scene in The Silver Chair that I think beautifully captures this dual reality of Jesus. So Jill, one of the main characters in The Silver Chair, is dying of thirst. She's in Narnia. She's frantically looking for a source of water. And then finally... In her incredible thirst, she happens upon a stream, a flowing, clear stream. And as she begins to make her way towards the stream, she's paralyzed. She's stopped in her tracks because she sees right by the stream is a lion who is laying there. It's Aslan. And she's petrified. And she's terrified. Even though she's dying of thirst and wants to drink, yet she fears for her life the danger of the lion. And this is their conversation here. Aslan says to her, if you are thirsty, come and drink. She doesn't move. She pauses. She's gripped by her fear, the grip of not, of not knowing what will happen if I move closer. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls? I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Then I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. 
What a picture of Jesus. As we come face to face with the real Jesus, the full Jesus, the King, with absolute authority and absolute power, and we say to Him, I am so thirsty, but will I lose everything? And He says, come and drink. And so often in our life, in our thirst, that deep longing for life that is the most true thing about us, because we were made to drink deeply of Him, but yet our tendency is to go to so many other sources of life. And we so often say, as we consider yielding ourselves to Him, i got to go find another stream. And He says to us, there is no other stream. To drink deeply of Him is to yield up control. But to yield up control and drink deeply of Him is the life for which we were made. Jesus is our authority. The essence of knowing Him is releasing control to Him. And here is the gift that He gives to us. He exercises His good, loving, life-giving authority in our life through the authorities that He's brought into our life, even in the church. As we come into the church and we submit ourselves to the church, we begin to receive Jesus' care over our life, not because the leaders are anything special. Oftentimes, they're nothing. But yet it is the authorities in our life that God uses to provide His care for our lives.